And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Vera Staley wanted to kick herself. She swore that she would never say yes to this again. But here she was, once more, feeling stressed, put upon, and out of her element. Last year it sounded like fun. Larry Dowd had asked her to be the prop mistress for the newly formed Zarahemla Community Theater and its production of The Music Man. Larry, of course, had cast himself as the lead, Harold Hill, and his wife, Marcy, as Marion the Librarian. But that was okay, she supposed, since they had been the ones to start the whole thing, and they really had put in an awful lot of time and sweat to make it happen. The problem was that while both of them had been in plays in high school and had each taken a beginning acting class in college, in fact, that is where they met, they really didn't seem to know as much as they thought they did. Vera couldn't stop herself from laughing every time Larry gave directions to his cast or crew. Larry had a very distinctive Oklahoma accent, yet in his role as director, he suddenly took on a Bostonian Brahmin tone, sounding like Charles Emerson Winchester III from M.A.S.H. Last year, in addition to having to find band uniforms for varying sizes of kids, she had to talk her mother into making one small enough to fit Winthrop. It didn't exactly match the uniforms she had adapted from Zarahemla High School storage, but it was good enough for stage. She also had to find a working player piano, Larry insisted that it be genuine, and an actual anvil to put in the anvil salesman's suitcase. Mrs. Anderton had the player piano and was happy to loan it to the production, provided that it be moved carefully and tuned again after it was returned to her parlor. Vera tried to talk Larry out of using the anvil, but Larry wanted authenticity and didn't trust that the actor could convince the audience that the suitcase was weighted with an anvil unless there was actually one in there. Finding the anvil wasn't a problem. Helaman Orton was playing the part of Charlie Cowell, the anvil salesman. Helaman had been shoeing horses his whole life and had his own anvil. He just didn't want to carry the darn thing in a suitcase. He argued with Larry, citing his hernia from a few years ago. He certainly didn't want to aggravate an old wound, but Larry wouldn't budge. In rehearsals, Helaman carried the suitcase awkwardly with both hands and moved cautiously. Larry encouraged him, saying, "'That's exactly what it needs. You're doing perfectly, Helaman.' Then, at the final dress rehearsal, as Helaman turned to walk off stage, the seam on the old suitcase tore and the anvil spilled onto the social hall stage floor, adding a permanent dent. Vera asked Larry if she could just use books from now on, but Larry's only response was, "'Get a stronger suitcase!' Vera did get another suitcase, but covertly asked Helaman to take the anvil home, and she loaded the suitcase with books. Larry never knew the difference." Vera was also asked to find a half-crated pool table. It was to sit stage left through the entire production as a symbol of the dangers of outlying cultural influences on a close-knit community. Vera couldn't help but think that Larry didn't quite understand the theme of the play, but she tried to find the pool table anyway. Locating one in Zarahemla, however, was just as difficult as finding one in the fictional River City, Iowa. She searched in surrounding communities and found that the Carter family over in Antimony had a pool table in their basement, 
The problem was that it had been lowered into their rec room during construction of the house. The only way of getting it out was to break it up or remove a wall. Vera decided that it just wasn't worth the effort to find a prop that wouldn't actually be used by anyone in the cast, but would sit as a symbol of the director's misunderstanding of the play's gentle mockery of a town similar to Zarahemla. She finally worked up the courage to approach Larry during the last week of rehearsal and tell him that the best she could do was to give him a large box labeled pool table. Larry looked confused for a moment, and then said dismissively, Oh, no, I rejected that notion long ago. The stage is just too small for such a luxury, however brilliant the idea. That's when Vera decided that she would never do this again. She loved community projects like this, but she was a volunteer. Her kids had had to eat her husband's cooking all week, and she didn't need to be treated this way. Well, here she was volunteering again. She supposed it was a little like having a baby. The memory of the pain fades over time, at least enough to allow you to consider having another one. This year, Larry and Marcy had selected Oklahoma to star in. She would play Laurie, and he would play Curly. Larry is such a smooth talker. He told Vera, I have never worked with a more dedicated and creative properties artist. You have a flair for problem-solving. But she wasn't falling for it, and he knew it. And while I must have your ingenuity as prop mistress, he continued, I also think you would make the most adorable Edo Annie. That cinched it. Vera knew she was being played, but she didn't care anymore. She had a fair voice, and she always thought she was a fair comedienne. She wanted to do it, and if finding props for a bumptious histrionic director was the price for her moment of glory on stage, so be it. Emma Benyon was eleven and a half and trying not to lose her temper. She was getting better at it, but sometimes the littlest things set her off. When she watches a movie at the movie theater or at a friend's house, and people talk or play on their phones. She just doesn't understand why people won't give their full attention to the story. Her daddy reads to her and her sister on Sunday evenings, and as a family, they never let anything interrupt the storytelling. She even waits, if she can, until she is about to pee her pants so that she doesn't interrupt the flow of the plot. So it doesn't make sense to her why other people can't give all of their focus to a story. When people get upset because she corrects their grammar. She is good at grammar, probably because her daddy reads to her, and she reads voraciously herself. But why do people get mad when she points out their mistakes? Don't they want to learn to speak correctly? But today, it is the fact that the new babysitter won't let her cook grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch. Emma is almost 12. Why can't Dad understand that she doesn't need a babysitter anymore? And besides, she's been making grilled cheese sandwiches since she was eight. Mrs. Landing seems to think it is too dangerous for a girl her age. Mrs. Landing is Mrs. Anderton's sister. Mrs. Anderton was feeling poorly today and so asked her sister to fill in as babysitter. Mrs. Landing lost her husband a while back, and so the two sisters decided to live together since Mrs. Anderton is also a widow. 
Emma has been quick to anger as far back as she can remember. Daddy has talked to her a lot about it. He thinks she is mad at her mother for leaving her when she was just three years old. Emma doesn't remember, but she does get mad when she thinks about it, so maybe Dad's right. Emma never takes her anger out on her little sister Rebecca, though. She watches over Becca like a, well, like a mother. Like a mother is supposed to look after her child. Not that Becca can't be annoying. Becca does the most childish things sometimes. But Emma is always good-natured with her and instead turns her irritation toward the world around her. Daddy, ever patient, keeps telling her that anger doesn't make things better and that she should try to channel her feelings into accomplishing something instead of wallowing in them. She tries. She sometimes finishes her ranch chores in half the time they should take, not because she is anxious to play, but because she has so much pent-up anger that she works double time. So there was Mrs. Landing making cold sandwiches with some leftover chicken, a little mayo, and some dill relish. They were pretty good, Emma admitted to herself. But why was Mrs. Landing afraid of turning the stove on? Emma wondered if she had ever had kids of her own. After lunch, Becca went out to play in the front yard. Stay where I can see you, called Mrs. Landing. Emma would play with Becca if she called, but Emma wanted to finish reading My Side of the Mountain. She was loving it. She had just reached the passage where Sam finds his great-great-grandfather's land when a scream rang out from the kitchen. Emma dropped her book and just about ran into Mrs. Landing, who was opening the front door a crack and urgently coaxing Becca to come inside. Looking out the window, Emma saw that a large moose had wandered into their front yard. No, Mrs. Landing, tell her to curl up like a ball. She'll understand. Emma then ran to her father's bedroom closet and returned to the kitchen with a shotgun. She pulled out the stepladder, climbed up, opened the cupboard door above the refrigerator, pulled out a bag that contained a case of shells, removed two, put the rest away, and climbed back down. What are you doing? squealed Mrs. Landing. Just watch Becca, Emma calmly replied as she loaded the two shells. Shotgun in hand, Emma went through the side door of the kitchen and slowly came up behind Becca, who was giggling with excitement in her curled-up position. Are you okay, Beck? whispered Emma. Uh-huh, chuckled Becca. Can I show Daddy? We'll show him later, Emma assured her. This is going to be loud. Get ready. Rebecca put her fingers in her ears. The moose was calmly grazing, so Emma figured there wasn't much danger, but she stood in front of Rebecca anyway and pointed the shotgun into the air towards the alfalfa field. Daddy had explained that the kick of the shotgun was more than she was ready for, so she lodged the stock of the gun against the rim of a watering trough that was next to her and pulled the trigger. The sound startled the moose, and it immediately ran toward the woods from which it had come. With shell and shotgun stowed away, Becca making mud pies in the backyard this time, and Mrs. Landing breathing normally again, Emma began loading the dishwasher. Mrs. Landing looked on in wonder, and then said, You are a very capable young woman, Emma. I'm sure you feel that you no longer need a babysitter, especially a hair-brained old woman like me. I agree with you. However, I'm here for your father's sake. He needs to know that you are safe. 
He also, I'm afraid, is having a hard time believing that you are growing up. It scares him. So be patient with him. And with me. Okay? Emma smiled, and then Mrs. Landing helped her with the dishes, and then they worked together to make a special treat for Daddy, Mrs. Landing's special homemade cinnamon rolls, to which she added just a touch of cardamom. She pledged Emma to secrecy. Larry Dowd was crazy, Vera knew, but she would just try to keep him happy. Trying to get ahead of the game, Vera had located a beautiful butter churn in the props department over at the Neil Simon Festival in Cedar City. A butter churn was Oklahoma's iconic prop. But when rehearsals began, Larry told Vera and Joy Farnsworth, who was playing Aunt Eller, that his concept called for Eller to be plucking a chicken instead of churning butter. It sets a theme of death as part of the circle of life, which prepares us for Judd's cruelty and the near-death experience at the end of the play, Larry explained. Vera and Joy just stared at him, knowing that any response on their part would only edge Larry into a philosophical treatise on death and how the fear of it drives all of our actions and decisions. This was Rogers and Hammerstein, for heaven's sake. So Vera began trying to find a prop chicken that would look real and could be plucked, but no luck. The only prop chickens she could find online were rubber prank chickens, chickens that looked like they were roosting, or chickens that looked clean, stuffed, and ready for the roaster. This one, Larry insisted, must still have its head and feathers that could be plucked. After three weeks of searching online and calling theater companies throughout the region, Vera gave up. She would have to reason with Larry and get him to go back to the butter churn. But Larry wouldn't budge. Use a real chicken, he insisted. A live chicken, she asked, confused. No, he answered with a tone of admonishment. A dead one. She hadn't thought of that. Probably because it seemed wrong. Killing a chicken for a show? But then someone could certainly eat it after, she supposed. She knew that the Grover family farm, halfway between Zarahemla and Hatch, raised chickens for some of southern Utah's restaurants and markets. Surely they could supply her with one dead chicken. She called and arranged it, with the definite stipulation that they needed to leave the head on, but that they would have to kill it. She'd never lived on a farm and didn't think she was up to it. Vera stood her ground with Larry about only having the real chicken for real shows. They would have to use a rubber chicken for the dress rehearsal and be sure to refrigerate the real one after the opening night so it could also be used for closing night. In a town the size of Zarahemla, paying royalties for more than two nights seemed a waste since practically the whole town could see it in two performances. It seemed like a lot of work going through six weeks of rehearsal for only two showings, but that's the life of a theater artist. Vera laughed at herself over the thought. She wasn't a theater artist. She was a mother, a wife, recently a writer of children's books. She was still looking for a publisher, but her kids loved the stories. And a ham who was willing to put herself through community theater hell to show off for a couple of days. It was Friday afternoon. Tonight was opening and Vera had just picked up the chicken. 
It was presented to her in a sack. She asked, Is it dead? Wrung its neck myself, Mrs. Grover answered. But the head is still attached, Vera confirmed. That it is, Mrs. Grover answered as she turned to head back to her bread-making. Huck Benyon had just come home from a state-sponsored ranch and land management seminar held in St. George. It had been going on for three days, and he had driven back and forth each day. He was worn out, but he had promised his girls that they would all go to the opening night of Oklahoma. Besides, he had also run into Mayor Hafen yesterday morning and worked up the courage to ask her if he would see her at the play Friday night. She had said yes with an enigmatic smile. Enigmatic or not, Huck was determined to get there before her, save a seat, and ask if she would like to join them. When Huck arrived at home, he was practically knocked over by the wonderful smell of cinnamon rolls. The girls and Mrs. Landing were falling all over themselves, competing to tell him about the moose. Huck was thankful and proud. He could also see that Emma carried herself a little differently and had a twinkle in her eye when she said goodbye to Mrs. Landing. They had their dinner, a wonderful meal of pork chops and green beans that Emma had also helped Mrs. Landing to prepare. Then they packed into the car and headed to the social hall. Vera opened the sack to show the chicken to Larry. "'Never doubted you for a moment, my dear.' said Larry as he hurried off to see if the programs had arrived in the lobby. Vera was reluctant to touch it herself, but when she showed the chicken to Joy, Joy picked it up out of the sack without hesitation. Joy then sat with the bird and began stroking it, talking to it, thanking it. Vera couldn't hear everything she was saying, but it seemed almost like a prayer and ritual. Joy then asked for scissors and carefully trimmed off a few feathers. Somehow she knew that plucking feathers from a chicken without first dipping it in hot water was difficult, so Joy planted the trimmed feathers among still-attached feathers and would pull out the trimmed ones for the show. She then gave the sack with chicken and clothes to Noah Young, who was serving as a stagehand. Noah loved helping out backstage. Vera's job was done, so she headed off to the dressing room to get into costume and begin warming up for her performance. There she is, whispered Huck. He had been watching the door intently, only half hearing his girl's questions and comments. Rebecca didn't completely understand why Daddy was acting so strangely, but Emma understood and openly laughed at him when he stumbled getting out of his chair to go greet Mayor Hafen. She watched him as he awkwardly moved through the crowd and intercepted the mayor before she had a chance to choose a seat. Emma sure loved her dad. The split second that Merrill finished greeting the Smiths, the Carters, and the Howards, Huck jumped in with, Mayor Merrill, uh, Merrill Hafen, uh, Mayor Hafen, he began. Huck, she admonished, please call me Merrill. Okay, Merrill, it looks like it will be pretty crowded tonight. My girls and I have an empty seat down on the fourth row. Would you like to join us? Merrill accepted, and Huck was beaming as he led the way back to his daughters. Vera was standing in the wings. She loved the energy that permeates a theater when actors first perform for an audience. Noah was standing there watching as well. 
Suddenly Noah whispered in Vera's ear, I think the chicken is alive, he said. Vera smiled at him. Noah was such a dear soul, but he didn't always understand. No, she reassured him also in a whisper. Joy can't have a live chicken. I made sure we got a dead one. But I saw it move in the sack, Noah insisted. The lights dimmed. The overture began. In actuality, the orchestra consisted of only Zim Cadencia on cello, he was also the music director, Nick Merrill on drums, and Lily Welch on piano. The overture ended, and they received roaring applause. They really were quite good. And then the lights came up on the stage. There was no main curtain in the social hall. There was Aunt Eller sitting center stage on her stool in silhouette. Curly began singing from offstage, There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The front lights hit Joy as she picked up the chicken and began feeling for the planted feathers. Suddenly, the bird's feet began to move and dig into Joy's thigh. Joy was so startled that she leapt up from the stool, knocking it to the ground and let go of the bird. Larry's blocking called for him to enter stage left as he sang, The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. Just as he stepped on stage, a chicken with lolling head ran at him, flapping its wings and lifting off the ground a bit. Larry screamed. The bird veered away toward the orchestra. Larry fumbled, trying to find where he was in the song. The chicken flapped its way off the stage and landed on the piano. The orchestra ground to a halt. A mixture of laughter and panicked cries came from the audience. Larry remained frozen in place and looked from Joy to Zim and back again. Vera and Noah were still in the wings. After the initial shock, they looked at each other. Noah said, I told you, and they began laughing hysterically. Lori, Larry's wife Marcy, who wasn't supposed to enter for another five minutes, heard the commotion from the dressing room and ran to the stage. Seeing Larry's uncertainty and hearing that the music had stopped, she ran center stage and shouted, Somebody grab that chicken! Lily, the pianist, reached for it, but the chicken flapped again and was in the second row of the audience. Hans grabbed for it, but it was on the ground now and running between chairs and people's feet. Pandemonium spread across the first few rows as laughter rose to the level of tears in the rest of the house. Emma stood on her chair and began tracking the bird's path by the reaction of the audience members. Soon she divined where it was heading and she was waiting for it. It came out at the end of the fifth row, right behind where Daddy and the mare had been sitting. Emma leaped for it and soon had it in both her hands. Its neck was obviously broken, but somehow it had lived. Without hesitation, Emma swung it around and smashed its head against the wall of the social hall. The sudden smack silenced everyone in the theater. The chicken was now still. Emma walked to the stage, held the chicken up for Marcy, and said, You may go on with your show now. As people settled back into their seats, Merrill Hafen leaned over to Huck and said, That girl is going places. The show was a success, although nothing could top the first few moments. After all the applause and hugs and thank yous, Larry made his way through the well-wishers to speak with Vera. 
I'm afraid this simply won't do, Vera, he began. The chicken's feathers are far too bright and pull the audience's focus at all the wrong moments. Would you see to it that we have a brown or black chicken for tomorrow night? Vera and Joy had made plans during intermission. Joy came forward, butter churn in hand, and together they informed Larry that tomorrow night they would be doing the play as written. They smugly turned away, leaving Larry flummoxed, and then laughed together as they went to put away their costumes. The next morning, Huck Benyon was surprised when he came in from milking the cows to see Emma sitting on the porch in the early bright golden haze, plucking a white-feathered chicken. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend. <laughs>